Well, good morning. Welcome to week three of Advent. If you haven't done the math, ten days till Christmas. Why does everyone do that? Why are we? This is good. This is exciting. This is good. I hope that doesn't overwhelm you. Um, but I don't know about you, but I have over the years grown to appreciate the time of Advent more and more, as we find ourselves in a very similar place to the people that we have been, from the perspective of whom we've been reading and looking at the first coming of Christ. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the first advent, the first arrival of Jesus through the eyes of someone who was waiting for it, through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah in the nation of Israel. As they were looking ahead to the first coming of Christ, we find ourselves today in a very similar place where we are looking back on the first coming but we're looking ahead and awaiting Jesus' return. So Advent over the years has continued to grow in its importance and its value to me as, as we anticipate and we celebrate the Christmas season. And part of that is because we don't celebrate in the same way. We don't wait in the same way as they did in Isaiah's day. We wait knowing that we have, present tense, Emmanuel, God with us now. His Spirit is with us. He is our consolation. He is our comfort as we wait. So far this month, as we've lit the Advent candles, uh, we have declared together that our hope is in Jesus. We've declared that our faith and our confidence is in Christ. And this morning, the Gross family uh, lit the third candle that, where we declared together that in Jesus there is true joy. So if you have a copy of your Bible, uh, I, I hope you do. Isaiah chapter 61 is where we'll be. I encourage you to grab that and open with me to that place, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is a part of a larger poem. It's, it's really one of the most beautiful sections of all of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 40 takes a turn from where Isaiah has been in the first 39 chapters, which are filled with judgment language and woe and warning. And Isaiah chapter 40 begins with a phrase that is, God speaks comfort to his people. And it's this beautifully epic poem that goes from 40 all the way to the end. I encourage you to read that if you're not familiar with it. It's some of the most beautiful language in all of Scripture. The message of consolation. And what's important as we're reading Scripture is that we understand what type of Scripture it is, what genre it is, because you would read a letter just a little bit differently than you would a narrative or a story, which you would read a little bit differently than you would poetry, which is what we find here. And in this poetry, this is Hebrew poetry, right? And one scholar puts Hebrew poetry this way. He describes it as addressing the mind through the heart, which means there's going to be a lot of language that is vivid imagery and metaphors and, and big, beautiful kind of, it's poetry, right? It's not just meant to convey information, but it's meant to invoke an emotion as well. And so as I read this, I'm actually not going to put it on the screen. You have it on the front cover of your bulletin, and you have a Bible in front of you, hopefully. Or you can just sit and listen and, and feel, what is Isaiah trying to communicate? And I want you to actually think about what maybe one or two words, what maybe small phrase would you use to summarize what is going on here, what Isaiah is doing. So hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities and they will ha- that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will, receive, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion of, in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord, and my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up for all nations. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So how would you summarize that? You hear that beautiful language? Do you hear the way that, that Isaiah is describing that? How would you describe that in one or two words or a phrase? I actually would, that's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> I don't know if everybody's like, wait, wait. Well, how would you describe it? Give me a word, a two, a phrase that, that you would use to describe what we just heard in 61. Good news, hope, justice, blessings, freedom. Beautiful words, beautiful imagery that takes place in this. When I read this, I can't help but see the compassion of God. Think about all the reversals that we just read. Think about the way that justice is taking place. Think of the good news. Think of the freedom, the blessing that you hear, that there's good news for the poor. That there's binding for the brokenhearted. There's freedom for the captives, for the prisoner. There's comfort for those who mourn. For those who are described, who sit in ashes, there's now beauty. There's joy instead of mourning. There's praise instead of despair. There's ancient, broken down, ruined cities that are renewed and rebuilt. Double blessing in place of shame. Rejoicing instead of disgrace. Do you know what that means for us? Do you see the heart of our God? Because this morning, if, if you're looking at that list and you go, I am, I'm in a place where about half of those words are my life. And they're not the pretty ones. If you're hurting today, if the words that describe you are brokenhearted and captive, if you are in mourning and grieving, if you feel as though you're sitting in a place of despair where shame and disgrace are your best friends, then hear God's word and heart for you, that he sees you, 
that he sees you and he cares and he's moving to rescue, to restore, that he wants to bring joy. That's the heart of our God. And it's none of this naughty and nice list garbage, right? Because there is no such thing as a nice list. There's one name on that. There's one person that has the, has the ability to stand and earn all of this blessing. And that's Jesus himself. The rest of us simply ask for it as a gift of grace. It's what Christmas is all about. Because if you think back to, to Isaiah's day, think of who Isaiah is, is writing to. He's writing to the nation of Israel, who for hundreds of years have been warned and called to repentance by God's prophets. God has spent prophet after prophet after prophet calling them to repentance. Return to the Lord. Be faithful to the covenant that you made. Walk in obedience. Walk in relationship with me. And Israel over and over again killed the prophets and rejected God. Refused to humble themselves, which eventually results in their exile and their being expelled from the land in judgment. So why are the cities ruined? Why are the people imprisoned? Why are there ashes? Why is there grieving? Well, because of their sin. They have rejected God. They said, God, no, thank you. We don't need you. We don't want you. And God said, okay, your will be done. And the result is disaster. Now, let me, let me just pause because I want to be really clear of what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that every bit of sorrow in your life is a direct result of your individual sin. That's not what the Bible teaches. It does teach that all the brokenness that we experience in this world, all the sadness, all the things that are just not right, are connected to and a direct result of sin. When our parents, Adam and Eve, rejected God, looked at what he offered and said, well, take your stuff, we don't need you. We will be God. We will decide what is right and what is wrong. And the world is plunged into the chaos in which we live right now. And we experience the fall. We experience the effects of the curse. But God, if you want to do something fun, go home and open a browser, open your phone, your search, and search the phrase, but God. You will find it throughout all of Scripture. And it is two of the most beautiful, it's the most beautiful pairing. This is the reality of where we live, sitting in our own mess, but God sees us. And God is full of compassion, and he's slow to anger, and he's rich in love, and he sees us hurting desperate, messy people, and he moves to rescue. He moves to restore. He moves to bring joy. This is why the message of Christmas is one of joy, which is why the angels said to the shepherds when they showed up in Luke 2, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. The Greek is mega joy. Mega joy for all people. For many of us, it's exactly what we experience at Christmas. The Christmas season is one of mega joy. It sparks joy, if you were to ask Marie Kondo, right? What sparks joy? This does. Christmas season does. Time where we are, are filled with family and, and festive traditions and there's beautiful decorations and, and Christmas lights and Christmas trees and, and parties and there's laughter and, and there's really good food and lots of cookies and we'll see that tonight at Carol's, right? Lots of good food and there's excitement of giving and receiving gifts. 
There's the joy of, of kind of childlike excitement. Whether you still have that or you see it in your kids or your nieces, nephews, or your grands. Time of joy. It's the most wonderful time of the year for many. And on the other hand, for many of us, this is one of the most difficult, challenging times of year. Because as I look around the room, I know stories. I know that the holiday season can be one that just highlights loneliness, right? Where no one invites some of us to parties. Some of us don't get a whole wall full of Christmas cards. And while social media and the movies tell us that everyone's having a great old time, it highlights loneliness for many. For others, it's the thought of a family that just doesn't seem like it'll ever happen. Where they long to be married, long to have children to enjoy the season with. And miscarriage and infertility are just too real. For some, maybe it's not what might be, but it's what isn't anymore. It's the pain of divorce. It's the pain of family fracture, where just things aren't the same anymore. And for some of us, you're going to be without a family member for the very first time this year. Or maybe that loss was years ago, but that wound is just as fresh this morning. And every year, it's like that scab just gets ripped open again. Still others of us, it's not about family, but it's about other things. Health, the diagnosis, financial struggles. And let's face it, if that's not you right now, it will be. It will be. Suffering is not avoidable in this life. And as we step back and we hear Isaiah 61, you hear good news. You hear blessing. You hear freedom. You hear joy. Don't you want that? Isn't that what your heart longs for? Where do we get that? Where is this everlasting joy? You watch any sort of television or are in the internet and have any advertisements come up on the side, you know where we attempt to find joy at on a regular basis, especially at Christmas time, right? 2018, it's reported that holiday retail sales passed a trillion dollars. That is 12 zeros. Trillion dollars. You know where we look for joy from? That new truck. That new whatever. Fill in the blank. And don't get me wrong, it does bring a little bit of joy. It increases, it's, it, maybe not mega joy, but a little bit of joy for a little while. New car smell wears off, toys break. You've got months, hours, sometimes minutes of fun out of it and joy. But you can't buy everlasting joy. You watch holiday movies or you enjoy holiday traditions, then you know we try to find joy in family. And don't get me wrong, I love my family. I love Christmas time. I love all the traditions Joel and I have put together with our family, stolen from many other people. You know, just fun things that we enjoy. I love being with my family. And again, they can bring a great deal of joy. 
But we are all one phone call away from losing that, aren't we? One phone call can change all of that. You see, when we anchor our joy into something that is temporary, then you are always at risk of losing that joy. Which is why Isaiah 61.10 is so, such good news for us. So good. As I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God. Why? Because he has clothed me with garments of salvation, arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Where is joy found? It is found in God and in his salvation. That for those of us who are past Christ's first coming, what does that look like? Well, it looks like those of us who have been united to Christ by faith, who experience the reality that our sins have been forgiven, that we have been adopted into the family of God, that we have been given his spirit, that God is with us. That is where we anchor our joy. C.S. Lewis has this incredible quote in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, today, if you are searching for joy, you will not find joy. You will not find true, everlasting joy in your circumstances, in your health, in your family, in your possessions, in vacations, in stuff, in tradition, whatever. You will not find true, everlasting joy there. Turn to Christ. See the heart of God that he wants and longs to offer joy to all people. That includes you. Yeah, you. As the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. True everlasting joy is only known and experienced by being in the presence of God. For the follower of Christ... Our joy is anchored in something that we cannot lose because it was not something we gained for ourselves. Our joy is anchored in a relationship with God in which he initiated, that he brought about in your life, and that by his faithfulness, he has promised to bring it to completion. We have a God who looks at his people and says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And when you anchor your joy in that permanent reality, there is nothing you experience that can steal your joy. Nothing. Your joy is anchored in permanence. And we experience a joy that goes underneath everything that we walk through. It will sustain us through sorrow because our ultimate hope is in something we cannot lose. Our joy is in Christ and his love made known to us at the cross. Does that phrase that we've been talking about this morning, meditating on, in Isaiah 61 verse 10, does that sound familiar? This again, I delight greatly in the Lord and my soul rejoices in my God. Did you hear something similar to that already this morning? Sounds a lot to me like Luke chapter 1. We just heard the Gross family read to us. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary bursts out into praise of joy because she knows that God has brought salvation to her. But the interesting thing is not only has God clothed her with righteousness and salvation, 
But God has chosen to clothe salvation in her body. Because inside of her womb grew the Savior of the world, the Messiah of God. Joy is a person. Salvation is a person who you and I can know. And at Christmas, we're humbled because our God took on flesh. He became like one of us, and he entered into this world of sorrow to be with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. He brought his presence to us. That is where Christianity is unique among all other religions. All other religions say, here is the path to get to God. See, look, I've made it, says the founder. Christianity says, I've come to you. God comes to us. He initiates, he pursues, he moves, he brings his presence in our lives. In fact, this this passage of Isaiah 61 is what Jesus saw as his primary mission. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Isaiah 61, 1. Then he rolled up his scroll. I don't know why I grabbed my sleeves. I picture him rolling up his sleeves, too. Rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the room were fixed on Jesus. And he began to them by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know that one that was promised to bring joy, the one who's promised to bring freedom and blessing, the one who's promised to bring justice? I'm here. That's what I'm here to do. Been fulfilled in your midst. I am the one who will bring salvation, who will remove shame, who will care for the needy, who will bring joy to those in sorrow. I'm here. And it feels a little bit confusing to me because this was 2,000 years ago. Jesus came, said, I'm here to do this. He was crucified and he was raised to life. And yet here we are, many of us sitting in this sorrow still, all of us, either in it now or it's coming. What do we do with that? One of the ways that we talk about this experience is through two, I guess one's a word and one's a phrase. If you throw a hyphen in it, it can be whatever. Describe it as the already and the not yet. Here's what I mean by that. We experience this joy in part as followers of Christ who have the Spirit of God inside of us. We enjoy and experience this joy in part. And not yet in the fullest that we will one day. We're waiting for Christ to bring this promise, this experience into the fullness of what it will be one day. You see, when the prophets saw this passage, they saw this all happening in one moment. The Messiah comes, boom, full joy, full everything. But in reality, what it is, is there's a gap between, and we live in that gap, between Christ's first coming and his second coming. 
At his first coming, Jesus initiated this. He came saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. And he's making that true. He came and he defeated shame and death. He released us from the power of sin. And then he went away. And he says, I'm coming back and I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I'm going to finish what I've started. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And in his wisdom, he saw fit to put a gap of time between then and now. And that, that, that waiting that we're in now is actually God's patience as he extends that invitation to the world. And after Jesus was crucified and he was raised to life, he ascended to the Father's hand. Where 2 Corinthians 1 tells us that, that God has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. If you own your home, but you have a mortgage on it, is it your home? You own it. Yeah. Eh, not really. Nobody looks and goes, hey, do you own your home? Well, technically the bank owns it. Right? No one actually does that, right? Even though that's true. Why? Because you've already put a deposit on it, and your deposit is actually a promise with the bank that you will make good and complete your payments in time, right? But it's your home, but not yet. Maybe in a similar way. This is what the deposit is in our hearts. That God has put his spirit, the comforter, the consolation in our hearts, in us as a deposit, guaranteeing he will make good on his payments. Good news is God doesn't foreclose. He is promised and he is faithful and he will bring about the completion of what he started. Which means that not only is joy a result found in the fruit of the Spirit, a result of having the Spirit inside, it's also a foretaste of what is to come. That complete joy is coming one day. That when Christ returns, all things will be made right. Jesus promised his followers in John 16 that your sorrow will turn to joy. Because we find this promise in this picture of the end that the Apostle John gets where he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Can you hear Isaiah 61 again? For he has clothed me in garments of salvation and arrayed me in his robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. That's Isaiah 61. Jesus says, this is where you will be. I've promised I will make you this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among his people. The city comes down to earth and God comes with it. And his dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. And look at the result, friends. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. 
because the old things are gone. Wow, I can't wait for that. This means that wherever you are this morning, whatever is bringing you sorrow, it does not have last word. It doesn't. It doesn't have final say. Because Christ was raised to life, we have hope and confidence that the strongest thing that stands against you, even death itself, does not have final word. What joy that brings. What joy. And in the meanwhile, Walter Rowan Williams just nails this. Listen to what he says. He says, we are in the middle of two things that seem quite contradictory. In the middle of the heart of God, the ecstatic joy of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and in the middle of a world of threat, of suffering, of sin, and pain. And because Jesus has taken his stand right in the middle of these two realities, that is where we take ours. We live in a world where we experience sorrow, and underneath that, a joy that cannot be shaken a joy that cannot be stolen, a joy that cannot be lost no matter what we face. And it's really tempting for us to go into one of two extremes. Many of us stand here with this tension and it feels really uncomfortable and so we default one way. And we make that way uh, the, the way of denying sorrow. We just pretend it doesn't exist. We just, you know, don't want to think about that because it kills our joy and it's, you know, it sucks all the fun out of life. And so we just go for another movie or another cookie or another fill in the blank. And we act like sorrow isn't real. You were here a couple of weeks ago, it's kind of like Elf. Kind of like Pixar's Inside Out where joy tries to get rid of sadness altogether. We plaster a smile on our face and say, I'm great. And we ignore the reality of sorrow in life. Or we tend to the other extreme, which is we deny the joy. A little more bah humbug, a little more Scrooge, a little more Grinch from two weeks ago. A little more there's nothing good in life. And we deny the reality that Christ has come to bring joy now. And it's tempting. Each one of us has a tendency to go in one of those two directions. Because it's really hard to hold those two things in tension that seem to be contradictory. And yet, that is what the gospel brings. Joy is not simply the absence of sorrow. Joy is not just ignoring sorrow, but true joy is found in the presence of Jesus with you in the middle of it. That is true joy. The gospel provides us a way to experience joy in the middle of sorrow. You don't have to ignore the reality of hardship and difficulty, and yet we are not overcome by it either. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And this is one of the mysteries of being a Christian. That in this world, we will have trouble, but take heart, Christ has overcome. And that's really hard to see. Two weeks ago, when Jim was preaching, he said a phrase that stuck with me. I've been thinking about it a lot since. He said this. He said, it's really hard to see Jesus with you when your hopes are dashed. Same is true of joy. It's really hard to experience joy when we're overwhelmed by sorrow, which is why Christ has given us one another. 
Which is why walking with Jesus is not an individual sport. It is a team sport. It's not just a me and Jesus, but it's me and you and Jesus. If you're a believer in Christ, you've been placed into the body. You've been placed into the church. Joy is suffocated in isolation, but it's in community that it grows and that it thrives. Think about the Advent reading that the Gross has read for us this morning. If you put the whole thing together, the whole chapter together, you'll find that Mary did not burst forth into joy the first time she heard this good news. Think about what news she got. You know, you're highly favored, but your life's going to be awful, really, because you're a teenage girl who's not married, who's pregnant. Good luck explaining that to your family in a shame and honor culture. Good luck. You're outcast now, but you're highly favored. Well, that doesn't really feel like favor sometimes. And she doesn't respond. She actually goes, how? How can that be true? Well, may your word be true. May your word come to pass. When does she burst forth into joy? It's not till she's in community. It's not till she goes to her cousin's house, Elizabeth's house. And Elizabeth affirms to her, no, this is good news. There is joy in this. It's only in community. Actually, it's John the fetus, right? He's not baptizing anybody yet. John the Baptist. John the fetus is the one who first bursts out and goes, hey. Some of you are catching that. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's not until John leaps for joy inside his mother's womb at the sight of Mary. It's not until there's a community around her that she sees that there is joy in the midst of this difficulty. She bursts out, my soul glorifies the Lord and I rejoice in a God who saves. And as you and I fight for joy, it has to be in community. It has to be living with people who know you, who you allow to experience the sorrows and the joys of your life. But God has given us one another, and my prayer is that we would become a church who weep with those who weep, who rejoice with those who rejoice, that we would be a church who proclaim to one another that because of Jesus, now is the year of the Lord's favor. That there is comfort for those who mourn. That there is beauty instead of ashes. There is joy instead of mourning and blessing in place of shame to remind one another what God has done. And sometimes we don't need words on that. I'm learning this for myself. But sometimes it means you just sit and you're silent. Okay, not to fix it. Really hard for me. But be present. And as we sit with one another, as we are indwelt by the Spirit and they are indwelt by the Spirit, what happens is we reenact the incarnation. We reenact Emmanuel. As you bring the presence of God, which is with you, into the sorrow of someone else, you bring Emmanuel to bear. You incarnate the love of God to them. As we look for, to encourage others in difficulty, as we ask the Lord for eyes to see those who are hurting, to care for one another, to be an avenue of blessing for someone, and we fight for ourselves to believe that God sees us and cares us, and we do that all at the same time that we have one eye to the future, to the promise that one day Jesus will return, and sorrow does not have final word, Shelton, this is your future, that those the Lord has rescued will return.
and they will enter Zion with singing, and everlasting joy will crown their heads, and gladness and sorrow will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Lord Jesus, we long for that day. We cannot wait for the day when our faith becomes sight, when you return and sorrow and sighing flee away. And all that's left is to be in your presence because in your presence there is the fullness of joy. And we praise you because you've not left us waiting alone, but you have come to us now and by your spirit who indwells us, to, indwells all who would turn to Christ in faith. You have filled us with joy. Lord, keep filling us with joy. Restore the joy of your salvation to us that we might be joyful in all circumstances. May we be a church who loves you as we love one another, as we experience the joy of our salvation. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray this all for your glory and for our joy and for a world that is longing and searching for joy. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.